Yeah, 34 years is a long time to work for someone. And I wasn't 12 when I started working there. A lot of people say that. No, I was 18, right out of high school. I'll never forget that day. It seems like it was just yesterday, but it was a long time ago. Um, which brings me to, I'm getting old, you know? It's like, what happened, right? It's like time is going by fast. Well, in 2023, I decided it's the year of checking on my health. It's time. 52 years old, there's things that I need to look at. So I, I did pretty good. I had my, you know, my annual OBGYN, you know, the mammograms, um, the eye checks, the dentist, the skin check. I finally did like the full like body skin check. That was fun to do. Um, but then as you get older, you go to one doctor and they're like, oh, you need to go see this doctor. Doctors, when you were little, you didn't even know that existed, right? So at this point, pretty much every crevice of my body has been checked, which is TMI. Um, but it's, you're kind of vulnerable, right? When you go to some of those doctor checks to have things checked on. But we do that because we want to make sure that things are okay. Because you can be going through life and things can appear to be just fine on the exterior only to get that call from the doctor that there's something pretty serious and significant going on on the inside that you really need to have checked out. And what all doctors will tell you is that a self-exam, to do self-exam on yourself is super important because it's gonna show us that if there is something that's wrong, then maybe we do need to go and get something checked out. It's important that we don't just get regularly health checks, but we also need to be getting heart checks as well. And I'm not talking about going to your cardiologist, which that I was sent to do as well, um, but I'm talking about getting our hearts checked to make sure that we're right before God. And scripture talks about that. Paul talked about that in 2 Corinthians 13, 5. In 2 Corinthians 13, 5, Paul said, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test. So like Paul, James seems to have a similar concern in our passage this week that we're gonna look at. He wants us to examine our lives and from a spiritual standpoint, we may appear healthy and that we're doing really, really good by doing all these religious things. But for some of us, your heart might not really be right before God. Matthew talked about this, or Jesus talked about this in Matthew 23, 27. Jesus calls out the Pharisees in the same matter, and he calls them hypocrites. And this is what he said in Matthew 23, 27. Jesus said, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you look like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanliness. So you also, outwardly, you appear righteous to others, but within, you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. That's pretty scary, right? You think that you're going through life and things look good on the outside, but on the inside, it's filth and your heart is not right before God. And so in our text today, James is going to show us what true religion should look like in our lives. If you call yourself a Christian, he's going to show us what it should look like in our lives. He's going to want us to, we're going to examine our faith today. I guess none of you knew that we were going to have a pop quiz. I hated test days. So it's a pop quiz day. We're going to have a little test. But this is a self-exam that you and I can't neglect, right? Um, like doctor's appointments, we can push them off and push them off and not want to go. But this is one that we need to check ourselves. And it's a self-exam. It's one that you're going to be checking within you. It's not something that someone else can point out to you, really. It's something that you need to check, in, check your own heart. 
So he's going to give us three examples of what true religion should look like in our lives. So open up your Bibles. We're going to be looking at James chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. It's on your worksheets if you don't have your Bibles open, but I would love for you to open up your Bibles or your, your phones or your laptops or whatever you have, and let's get our eyeballs on this verse. Verse 26 says, if, he, if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So we see this word religion in our passage three times, religious and religion. And a lot of people think this word religion is a bad thing, and it's not. I mean, religion is basically, it's just a belief system, right? There's different religions in the world. You have Christianity, you can have um, Jews, you can have Muslims, you can have um, Catholicism, you can have you know, Mormons, right? We know that there's bad religion, and then there's true religion. Well, James is writing to people that claim to be Christians. They have true religion. They have the true gospel. So in this passage, when it's talking about um, relig religious, their religious things that they're doing, if anyone thinks that they're religious, it's kind of like saying, if you think you're religious, you think you're Christians, right? You're coming here, you're coming to Bible study, you're coming to church, you're doing all these outward religious things that non-Christians would, would characterize you by. If you're doing all these religious things from an exterior standpoint, but there's not a change in your heart, then it's worthless. That's what the passage is saying. And what James is saying is he doesn't want us to be deceived. He keeps talking about deception in the book of James. In um, the beginning of James in 1.16, he says, do not be deceived. And in verse 22, he says it again and tells them to be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving themselves. And then he speaks of the same deception in our passage this week. And throughout the rest of the letter, he's going to talk about it. To be deceived by someone hurts, right? Have any of you ever been deceived by someone? You have someone that lies to you and you think that things are a certain way that they are only to realize that you were deceived and you were lied to? Well, that stinks and that's hard. But when you're self-deceived, when it's something that you've done to yourself, that's even worse. So he's not trying to cover every aspect of the Christian life in these two verses, but it is going to give us a pretty good idea if our faith is authentic or not. He does not want us to be deceived into thinking that these religious things that we're doing is causing us to be saved when, in fact, there's something really significantly wrong on the inside. So let's look at our first test. In verse 26, the beginning of verse 26, it says, If anyone thinks he is religious, meaning you think that you're a Christian by coming to church, coming to Bible study, doing all these things, and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Worthless. This, this word worthless is used in the Bible to talk about pagan worship. And a bridle, he's saying that if you can't bridle your tongue, they would know what a bridle was because they had livestock back then, the audience that James was talking to. A bridle is a bit. It's a piece that goes into a horse's mouth, right? This big animal, it goes into a horse's mouth, and what does it do? It controls the animal. It controls this big animal to go to the left, to go to the right, to go forward, to stop. And he's basically saying that if you can't bridle your tongue, if you can't control the words in your mouth, then the religion that you're professing, all these religious outward things that you're doing, you might as well bowing, be bowing down to an idol. And this word um, bridle is used in the present tense, so it's a continuous action. 
So what he's actually saying is that if you are characterized, if you are known to be a woman that has no control over your mouth, then your religion, what you're doing right here, you coming to church and you're doing all of these other things, it's worthless. In our flesh, we mess up in this area at times, and when you do, you confess it and you repent. And for some of you, it might have been as early as this morning, right? Getting ready, you get frustrated, you yell, you're going out the door, you're yelling at your kids because they're not getting things done, or your husband, or something at work, and you blow up, and we mess up. We repent. But this, he's talking about this being a, a characteristic of your life, something that's happening all the time. If you are habitually someone that cannot control their tongue, James says here that your faith is worthless. So as Christians, we know that one of the fruits of the Spirit is, is we have self-control, right? Galatians 5 says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, and self-control. And so what James is talking about here in our passage is we have to have self-control over our tongue, over our mouths. So the first test is this. Is your life marked by your ability to point number one, control your words? Pretty simple. I love, I love this passage because James gives us pretty three distinct things that we have to do. And the first one is control your words. It doesn't matter what you do here. I don't care if you come to women's Bible study every day, you go to church every week, you've taken multiple people through partners, you serve in different ministries. But if you can't control your tongue and it's something that is characterized in your life, Ladies, that is a symptom, and it's something that you need to self-check today. But why do our words matter so much to God? You're like, really? I can't control my tongue, so life and death depends on that? Well, let's turn to Matthew 12, and let's see what Jesus says about it. Matthew 12, you know, the Bible says a lot about our words, and I'm going to give you just the Cliff Notes version today. After Christmas, we're going to have two whole lessons devoted to just the way we speak. And I would encourage all of us to be here for that. Because as women, we have a lot of words, right? And so there's a lot of learning that we can do here. Um, but it matters because the way that you speak is a symptom of what's really going on in your heart. And Jesus is going to tell us that in Matthew 12. So Matthew 12, drop down to verse 33. Jesus says, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit, right? So if you want to know what a tree is like, you look at the fruit. If the fruit's bad, then the tree is bad. If the fruit's good, then the tree is good. Pretty simple. Verse 34, you brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So you may say that you're righteous. You may claim that you are holy and religious and you do all these things and you do all this stuff, but your words are going to reveal your heart exactly what Jesus is saying. So what do your words reveal about you? Self-check number one. A doer of the word is someone that God's word is implanted in their heart, and they're known by the way that they communicate. They speak loving, encouraging, kind words. Their speech is honest and pure. They don't participate in gossip and slander and crude jokes. Or are your words characterized by a mouth that continuously speaks words of criticism and lies and gossip? Do you have grumbling and hateful and angry words? Obviously, this isn't the way that we're speaking in our small groups, I hope. But what does it look like when you're not out amongst other Christians? In the privacy of your own home, 
right? I don't know why it is that we speak the worst when our doors are shut. The people we love the most are the ones that we don't talk nicely to. But what does it look like when you're out in the world, right? You're at work and you're around a bunch of non-Christian friends and they're, they're saying those jokes and they're doing those things. Do you blend in with them and you participate or in your neighborhood or out on the soccer field with your kids? Because you know, God's everywhere that you are, not just in your Bible study group. You guys realize that? Yeah. So in verse 36, he says, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you will be justified, and by your words, you will be condemned. Whoa. Does that surprise you? The final day of judgment, you are going to be judged based on your words. You're either going to be justified or condemned. Your words reveal if you have a heart that is right with God, and that is why. Again, are we going to do this perfectly? Absolutely not. None of us are going to be perfect in this, in this category, but it should not be the pattern of our lives. As Christians, your speech should look different. When you weren't a Christian, it looked one way, right? In Ephesians 2, you can turn there if you want, but in Ephesians 2, it talks about what we were like before we were Christians, in Ephesians 2, 1, it says we were dead in our trespasses and sins. That's the one, that how we used to walk when we weren't Christians. We followed the course of the world. We talked like the world. We acted like the world. We all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and our mind. We were by nature children of wrath, just like everybody else, just like everyone else in mankind. Verse 4, Ephesians 2, 4 says, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love which he loved us, even when we were dead and gross in our sins, what did he do? He made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And then down in verse eight, he says, for by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You are saved by faith through grace. You're not saved because of the words that you speak. That's not what saves you. But because you were saved, you will speak better. That's what we're called to do. When there's a transformed heart, there will be a transformed mouth. Because out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So this is the first test to see if your faith that you profess is real. So what do your words reveal about your heart? Think about that. We must be accountable to God for the words that we speak. And as Christians, we're going to slip up in this, in this area. And we must work hard to guard our mouths, especially with an unbelieving world that's watching us. We should have the same prayer as Psalms 141.3. Every single morning, this should be our prayer. Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. Every day when you wake up, keep a guard over my mouth. And you know, unfortunately for some of us, that means don't talk so much, right? I mean, we're women, and we have a lot of words and a lot of things to say. And sometimes that means that we just should refrain. You and I are faced with a choice every day how we're going to use our mouths. We can either use it to encourage or to destroy. 
Proverbs 18.21 says, death and life are in the power of the tongue. That's pretty crazy to think that you can either tear someone down or lift someone up with just this small thing in your mouth. So let's do a health check on our mouths. I've been doing this for a few weeks, and for me personally, it's been really, really challenging. You guys only get this for 40 minutes. I've been like studying this for a couple months, right? And so I wanna encourage you to do something. I want you to ask someone that's very close to you, if it's your husband, if it's your kids, if it's a best friend, I want you to ask them, what types of speech have you heard me speak that does not honor God? What are you characterized for? Ask someone that question. But then at the same time, I want you to have a heart to hear it and to humbly accept it and change it. Do better. We have to speak better if we are children of God. So in verse 26, James showed us what the mark of a Christian should not look like. And so now in verse 27, James will give us two examples of what true religion should look like in our lives. And he's going to give us two great examples. So back to our passage, James 1, verse 27, says, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. The words pure and undefiled simply mean the purest, truest, God-honoring kind of worship that God is looking for. Which really, it's only the perspective that matters, right? Is what God wants. We want to do the kind of worship that God wants. The kind of religion that's pleasing to God is demonstrated how? It says right here, by visiting orphans and widows in their affliction. Remember that James, his audience that he's writing to, um, these were Christians that had been persecuted, and they had um, been scattered, right? And when you're scattered and you're, you're, you're moving out and you're having to go find another place to live and you're being persecuted, as a family unit, at least you have one another, right? You have, you know, the husband and the wife and the kids, and you're all moving together. But the orphans and the widows were alone. So they represented in this passage a group of people that were helpless, that needed help. And so that's what James is referring to, that you need to help the helpless. This word visit, to go visit the orphans and widows, it doesn't mean just send a text and say, how's it going? or you know, just making a once-a-time check-in at an orphanage to see, see kids. No, this word visit means to care for. It means like nursing the sick. It's a genuine concern for someone. It means you go see them, you check in on them, you spend time with them, it's taking a meal to them, it's loving them, it's driving them to appointments, it's holding their hands, it's loving them. It's, it, is, it is investing in the lives of those that need help, the helpless. It's doing grocery shopping. It's sacrificing your time and your money for the needs of someone else. And so James says, do you want to know what pure and undefiled religion looks like and what matters to God? It's you taking care of the helpless. And so our second test is if you are a genuine follower of Christ, you will point number two, care for those in need. Care for those in need. So some of you may be going, I'm out, not my gift. You know, I don't, I don't work with children, and I don't work for those that need help. It's just not, I just don't have that heart. Sorry. Well, it's not about you. It's about what God is interested in, right? And if you love God, then you should be interested in what God loves. 
period. And when you look into his word, we find that we serve a God that is very, very interested in the orphans and the widows and the helpless and those in need. So if it matters to God and you love God and you have a heart that has been changed, then it should matter to you. The Bible has a lot to say about it. I'm just going to give you three verses. Psalm 68.5, God is referred to as the father of the fatherless and protector of the widows. Psalm 146.9, the Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless. Deuteronomy 10.18, Moses describes God saying, he executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. I can go on and on and on about how much God cares about those that are in need. It's a big deal to God, and it should be a big deal to us. For those of you that are parents, you know how it feels when someone loves your kid, right, and takes care of your kid. Um, Our son is away at college. He's at the Air Force Academy, and they do something there um, that's called, it's a sponsor parent program, which I don't know if other colleges do that. I wish hope they do because it's a pretty amazing program that they have. It's basically um, people can sign up to be a sponsor parent and they go through this vetting process and they're, they're a parent to these kids that are away from home. Cameron's sponsor parents have been a total blessing in our lives. Because he's so far away, he's in Colorado, I, don't, I can't care for him the way that he needs to. And there was a time that he got really sick And they went there and cared for him. They took him medicine. They took him food. They've picked him up when he didn't have a car, and they took him to church. They've dropped off food at um, at the school for him just because they love him and just to care for him. They've taken him to their home, and they've cooked him home-cooked meals and just let him take a nap on their couch. Do you know how much I love these people? Why? Because they loved my son when I couldn't be there. And that's what we are called to do as Christians. We are to be the hands and feet of Jesus caring for those in need. Jesus talked about this in Matthew 25, 40. He said, as you did to the one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it for me. So when you're out there in the world and you're helping those people and maybe your heart's not like totally into it, it's like you're helping Jesus. Look at them in the eye. You are being in the hands and feet of Jesus Christ. And as Christians, we are called to care about these people, not only because God loves them, but isn't that exactly what Jesus did for us? In 1 John 3, 16, it says, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. That means we're getting out there and we're doing something. You're not just talking about it. You're doing something about it. I love how one preacher put it. He said, just as speech reveals the genuineness of your heart, your attitude and love towards others with those in need reveals the genuineness of your love. So how are you showing loving care for others? How are you doing that? And maybe you're sitting here and you're saying, I, you know, I, I want to do that. I do have a heart for that. 
we have examples of ways that we can do that in our church home. I just saw recently this played out in our church home. There was um, some kids, the, uh, the parents did not go to our church. Um, actually, the mother was the only one in their lives. Uh, but these, these kids came to ministries here, and the mom passed away unexpectedly. And the aunt and uncle took these three kids in. And because these kids were at the church and they, someone knew about it here, they put something up on Facebook and said, you know, here are these three kids that are moving in with their aunt and uncle, which, by the way, already have a house full of children. How can we meet their need? And it was so beautiful to see, like, all the support they were getting. People were um, bringing in clothing to them, furniture, so that this house could have more furniture for these kids that they were taking in. I think they even got a car that was donated to them. They did all these things to help and support a family that was in need to care for these kids. That is the feet of Jesus. And you know what? We have, a, we have a watching world that's watching us do that. And it's showing who we are as Christians to love others. It's such a beautiful example. Jesus gave the commandment in John 13. He said, in a new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. This looks this way in your neighborhood, at work. If you see a need there, what a beautiful way to show that you are a follower of Christ than to help people at work and in your neighborhood. Um, whenever you see a need, fill a need. But how beautiful is it that we can also do that within our own church family? And you're like, well, how can I do that? Well, I've got some great suggestions for us. So one of the things that I love that comes up is at Christmas time, we have something that's adopt a widow, right? You all are going to be hearing about this in your women's Bible study small groups. You can either adopt a widow or um, bless missionaries. I mean, why don't we do both, right? Just my thought. It doesn't just have to be adopting a widow. When you're adopting a widow, it doesn't just necessarily mean that you're going to get this name of this person, and you're all just going to pitch in something and just give them something. You know, different people have different needs in our church. Some of them, they don't really care about the money. They just want your time. They want you to come over and spend time with them. And maybe some of them, because they're alone at home, they actually need help around the house. They need, you know, chores done. Some of them, it is financial, and they need financial help. That's something to be praying about as a group. How can we bless these women in our church that God loves so much? Another area is we have the Fix-It ministry here at Compass Bible Church. Um, Joe Spurgeon leads that. And for a lot of you, you're like, oh, isn't that the ministry for guys? You know, that's the guys all come, and they get fed breakfast, and they bring their tools, and they, you know, do their, like, little dude things. No, it's not. I, I believe that there's many women that come to this Fix-It ministry, too, and I found out that we actually had a widow that served in the Fix-It ministry. So one of the things that they also do is they go to um, some widows' homes and um, help them with chores around the house. And what a great way that if you have children, that you do this as a family, serve together. Go and get your hands and your feet dirty helping someone that is in need within our church family. What a beautiful example that is. I know that we have some high school students that go and do it alone. Yeah, beautiful, beautiful example of being the feet of Jesus. But there's many ways to care for the helpless, and it's not just about widows and orphans. 
We have single women at our church that their husbands have left them, and they're alone. Their husbands may, might not have died, but they're in the same predicament. They're alone, and they need help. We have families in our church that have special need kids. That's a lot of work. Maybe they just need someone to babysit their kids for a while so they can go out on a date. Reach out to Pastor Lucas. See the needs that are in our church. If you're on the prayer list at our church and you see all the needs that come through, it's driving people to doctor's appointments. It's taking people meals. It's helping those that can't help themselves right now. And if you have a transformed heart, then that should be something that you want to do is help those in need. So our last um, point is coming up in the end part of verse 27. So, so far we have seen that to be a doer of the word, then your life is marked by one who strives to control our words and a heart for caring for those who are in need. At the bottom of verse 27, it says, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphan and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So what does it mean to keep yourself unstained from the world? Well, have you ever done laundry and like you have all your whites in and someone puts something else in the washing machine and then when you open it up, it's a different color? Has that ever happened to you? I say someone, it's usually me that does that. <laughs> I can't put the blame on anyone else. Yeah, I just ruined a really nice shirt because I did that. You know, it's like you're like, oh, you know, rush, put everything in. I can do it all at once. What well, was not a good idea. Um, but it just means don't blend in with the world and let it stain you. That's pretty much what it means. Keep, your, keep oneself unstained from the world. And this, to keep oneself, it's a present tense verb meaning continuously. As Christians, we are to pursue personal holiness continuously in our lives. We fight to not allow the filth and sin of the world corrupt and stain our lives with its ideas. We must guard our thoughts and, our, and live by Christ's standards and not the standards of the world. It's talking about living a holy life in an unholy world. Pastor Mike just talked about that this weekend. I love how the sermons have completely um, intertwined with what we hear on the weekend and what we hear in women's Bible study. 1 Peter 1, 15 to 16 says, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. So our third and final test is, we need to point number three, cultivate personal holiness. Cultivate personal holiness. So how do we keep ourselves unstained from the world? I mean, we don't wanna be, um, we don't wanna be worldly. We don't want it to rub off on us and we don't want to conform to the ideas of the world. But we're called to be in the world, but not of the world, right? We all know that passage. So turn with me to John 17. Let's see what Jesus said. It doesn't mean that we're going to avoid all contact. We're not going to all move up to the mountains and you know, get a little Christian combine and, and just keep everything away from us. Jesus didn't do that, no. Um, we are going to have unbelievers in the world in our life. We're called to live differently. We're called to live holy. And hopefully we're able to share the gospel with those that don't know Christ. Jesus didn't run away from the world, and he didn't expect us to either. This is a prayer that Jesus prayed to God the night before he died. In John 17, John 17 dropped down to verse 14. Jesus said, 
to God. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. Jesus is praying that God would be, that we would be sanctified, that we would be set apart from sin. He wants us living holy lives in an unholy world. He wants us to be doers of the the word and living holy lives. Well, where do we find this truth? How do we get sanctified in truth? It's in the Bible. It's the only way that we can get sanctified in truth. This sanctification is only going to happen in our lives when we look at the word of God and we read it, we understand it, we study it, we embrace it, we love it, and we live it out in our lives. That is being a doer of the word. Romans 12.2, Paul said something similar. Romans 12.2, Paul said, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. You will be conformed to this world if you don't do something about it. We can't just sit here and not do anything about it. You're going to blend in in with the world. I hated it when my mom would tell me that. You are what you hang out with. And I'd be like, no, I'm not. And you are. We are. You must think biblically and through the lens of God's word, not the world. The world's way of thinking wants to conform you into its image. It's trying to press you into this mold that everyone else is doing is okay. And you're just too strict on the stuff you're doing, right? Don't think like the world. Don't let it stain, get on you, and contaminate you. And it's easy for that to happen. We let things creep into our lives, and they contaminate us. My husband is a biologist. And when he was in college, he loved doing these geeky experiments. And he had a friend over one time, another biology friend. For those of you that are biologists, I'm not making fun of you. But... um. Yeah, you are, yeah. Actually, his job is the most interesting job whenever we go places. Everyone want to hear what he's doing. But um, this one particular time, I'd been grocery shopping. I came home with all my groceries, and I open up the refrigerator, and there's all these little Petri dishes inside my fridge with stuff growing on them. I'm like, what is that? He's like, oh, we're doing an experiment to see who can grow the most bacteria. I'm like, okay. And he's like, so, you know, we swabbed things throughout the house. He goes, we swabbed, you know, the the window seals. We swabbed um, the bathroom, the toilet seat, our armpits, the sponge, you know, all these things. And he's like, guess what has the most bacteria on it? What do you think? The sponge. Uh, Yeah, I know. You're never going to think of your sponge the same again. And we don't either, because we look at that sponge, and I picture my whole entire countertop is now contaminated. We had someone come into our house one time, my aunt. She came to, like, clean the counter, and we were like, no, not the sponge. Don't put it on the counter. (laughs) That sponge, that one small small sponge corrupted our entire kitchen with filth and grime. Under a lens, our, our entire kitchen was stained. Just that little sponge. What areas in your life have you compromised? 
and it's allowed the sin of the world get on you. What do you fill your life with that's influencing you? Things that seem like nothing, but it's corrupt, and it's gross, and it's sinful through the lens of God. Is it the things that you watch, the things that you read, the people that you hang out with? We can't allow the thoughts and the ideas of this world to corrupt our thinking. We need to be careful and filter our lives through the lens of God's word instead of how the world thinks. We have so many tools to help us cultivate personal holiness and to help us not let the stain of the world rub off on us. The question is, are you using them? And the number one thing is God's word, the Bible. That's the only lens that you and I should be looking through. So what is your relationship look like to the Bible? The more time that you get into God's word, the more transformation you're going to see in your life. Daily Bible reading. Some of you may have never read through the Bible in your entire life from front to cover, from front to end. But yet, you can be on your phone and scroll endlessly through Instagram and Facebook or playing Wordle or whatever games you play. But yet, you haven't picked up the Bible today. Church. Ladies, we need to have a church home. If Compass Bible Church is your church home, great. Do you come here every week? We, we need to be coming to church. And if you don't have a church home, you need to find one. You need to find a good Bible teaching church that you can get God's word in your head every single week. Women's Bible study, yay, we're here. That's great. But also, we want to make sure that we're not just checking all the external boxes, that you're coming to women's Bible study, you're going to church, and you're doing all this stuff without a transformed heart. So when you're coming to women's Bible study, are you doing your lessons? Or are you coming here just to socialize? You just... You kind of just like coming to women's Bible study because you want to get the yummy food that's out there, and then you want to sit in our groups and chit-chat with each other. That's not why we're here. I mean, we're here for that, but we're here to study God's word and to grow in it and to let it sanctify us, to be more and more like Jesus. Women's retreats. What a beautiful way that we can all get together as women and, and leave. It's the only opportunity that we can leave the evil world, right? And come together as Christian women and encourage one another and grow with one another in um, God's word. It seems like we're living in a world where sin is getting worse and worse before our eyes. Things that at one time were considered bad are now acceptable and praised. Ladies, we need to make sure that the filth of the world does not get on us and we need to guard our lives against that. So that was our final test. And scripture's very clear that if you love the world, if you love the world, then you have a serious issue in your heart and it needs to be dealt with. It's a matter of life and death. 1 John 2, verse 15 and 17 says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but it's from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Like I said in the beginning, that James is not trying to cover every aspect of our Christian life. I don't want you to go through um, this passage in James and, and be like, okay, I check, 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 I did those three things, so I must be a Christian. It really comes down to your heart. And like I said in the beginning, this is a self-exam. This is something that you have to look at. And some of you may be looking here right now and, and be saying, 
I'm a phony, and no one else in this room knows it. But you do. It's your self-exam. So where do you stand in this? It's something that's very serious that we need to look at. Maybe you're looking at your words and you're like, yeah, I'm, I talk a completely different way outside of this room. I have zero desire to help anyone. And holiness, I, I kind of blend in more with the world than I do these Christians in the room. The good news is we have a perfect physician that's ready to heal your heart. He's the only one that can do that. It takes you repenting of your sins and placing your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ. And you know what happens when, that, when, when you do that? You get a new heart. And that new heart is going to want you to do these things. 1 John 1.19 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So that's my prayer for those of you here that maybe you're doubting a little bit. Please talk to someone. Talk to your leader. Talk to me. Talk to someone about what's going on in your heart. Let's get that fixed. But as Christians, we need to evaluate our lives in these areas as well because none of us are doing it perfectly. Again, like I said, we're going to get two whole lessons on our words. But how can we do it better? How can we control our words better? How can we care for those in needs better? And how can we cultivate personal holiness in our lives better? Let's pray. Dear God, Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the book of James. Um, such a practical book to show us what it's like to live out your word, to be doers of the word, God. And I just pray for all the women in this room. I pray um, for those that their hearts aren't right, that today may be the day that they let it go. They give it to you. They turn from their sin and they place their trust in you, God. And for the, those of us that are Christians, God, I just pray that we will do better in this area. We have a watching world out there that is watching everything that we do. And may we be an example of who you are. God, I pray for the groups today that um, there will be a transparency, um, an honest discussion that we can all spur one another on how we can just do better. God, thank you for today. And we lift up um, all these groups to you. And we pray all these things in your name. Amen.